Hello and welcome to Generation Insight, amplifying youth voices, the podcast channel for the most incredible young minds out there. I'm Jason Chu, a student journalist and a community advocate, and we're here to shed light on events that impact young people and topics that resonate with my peers. I also hope to encourage youth involvement in community services. This new episode is about earthquakes and insights from a globally recognized seismologist. Today, I'm honored to welcome a special guest, Dr. Peggy Helwig. Dr. Helwig is a highly respected seismologist whose groundbreaking work has significantly advanced our understanding of seismic activity and earthquake monitoring. Before 2000, Dr. Helwig dedicated many years to extensive research and studies across multiple universities, focusing on science with a specialization in seismology. Between 2001 and 2021, Dr. Helwig was at the Berkeley Seismological Laboratory as Operations Manager for the program's network of high-quality seism- of high-quality seismometer and accelerometer stations. She was previously Project Manager for the Earthquake Early Warning Systems at the BSL and spearheaded outreach to users of the EEW system, CISN Shakler. Dr. Helwig just retired as President of the Seismological Society of America. Hi, Dr. Helweg. Welcome, and thank you so much for joining us today. Okay, so the first question is, can you provide more information about your background and journey in the field of seismology, and what kind of work do you do as a seismologist? So, I studied physics at the University of California, San Diego, and when I had my BA, I was, so I was an exchange student in Germany, and then when I had my BA, I went back to Germany and I got a German master's in general in physics. But then I was looking for a job and seismology is a kind of physics and I had minored in geophysics so I applied for a job and I got it. And it was a lot of fun because it's... So so when you do physics, usually you're doing theoretical things and you're doing things in the lab where you control everything, but seismology is in the real world so you never know what's going to happen next really although there are parts of seismology where you do modeling and so on and you can make your own experiments and and make sure of what they happen but but the earthquakes are really an interesting part and on the one hand you learn something about how the earth interacts with buildings and society and on the other hand you learn something about the sources and why do they happen and the tectonics and the third part of the system is the ground in between so using seismic waves we can learn about the structure of the earth i see okay and um i saw that you do a lot of very interesting research on seismology um so can you tell me a little bit more about what you do yeah so so years ago i did some volcano seismology volcanoes rumble before they erupt and Uh We can measure that and learn something about the structure of the volcano, but also something about how active it is underground. There are lots of open questions still in volcanoes and volcano seismology that makes it interesting. And I um, used, I, I started out in broadband seismology, which is essentially a much higher fidelity system in the 40 years ago, a much higher fidelity system than than we had before then, digital data that allows the application of all of the modern tools we have to 
tickle out the details of how the ground is wiggling, not just, oh my God, it's big, but really the details of what's going on. Got so, it, I see. So I did some volcano seismology looking at what does it mean when the volcano makes various kinds of signals. And the last 20 years of my career are really an interesting part. And on the one hand, you learn something about how the earth interacts with buildings and society. And on the other hand, you learn something about the sources and why do they happen and the tectonics. And the third part of the system is the ground in between. So using seismic waves, we can learn about the structure of the earth. I see. Okay. And um, I saw that you do a lot of very interesting research on seismology. Um, so can you tell me a little bit more about what you do? Yeah, so so years ago I did some volcano seismology. Volcanoes rumble before they erupt. And uh-huh. we can measure that and learn something about the structure of the volcano, but also something about how active it is underground. There are lots of open questions still in volcanoes and volcano seismology that makes it interesting. And I um, used, I, I started out in broadband seismology, which is essentially a much higher fidelity system than, than 40 years ago, much higher fidelity system than, than we had before then, digital data that allows the application of all of the modern tools we have to tickle out the details of how the ground is wiggling, not just, oh my God, it's big, but really the details of what's going on. Got so, it, I see. So I did some volcano seismology looking at what does it mean when the volcano makes various kinds of signals. Northern California. But the data we collect are useful, are useful essentially globally for earthquakes. Got it. Okay. And um, as I'm sure you're aware, October 19th is the Great Shakeout Day. And what do you know about this event? And do you think that these events are important to stay prepared and educated about earthquakes? So the Great Shakeout Day was a wonderful uh, invention by people in Southern California to remind us all we are living in earthquake country and we can practice being prepared and to remind us to check all of our food and and resources that we are ready in case an earthquake happens because you never know when it's going to happen. It could happen today, but it could also not be for several years. So I think that, that the shakeout day is a really excellent opportunity for everybody to look look at their readiness situation and practice what you need to do in case there is an earthquake. Got it, okay. And do you think that people underestimate the dangers or effects of earthquakes, especially like in the Bay Area or California? And do you think that there's like a need for apprehension or not really? So, so in, in California in general, I think, the hazard of earthquakes is there all of the time. Mm-hmm. But we have, we have many, many other things on our mind, mostly 
And so something yeah. like the shakeout day, which is dedicated to thinking about earthquakes, is good. But on the other hand, earth, big earthquakes, damaging earthquakes don't happen every day. And, and so you need to balance how, how much are you afraid of earthquakes and what are you doing to be prepared? That the small effort to be prepared is really worth a great deal because then we can go about the rest of our lives um, without worrying too much because we know that we've we've done our preparations. The chances of you being hit by a car crossing the road are probably much greater than you being um, you experiencing some damage or injuries in an earthquake. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean it can't happen. Got it, yes. I know personally, like, in the area that I live, we experience a lot of small earthquakes sometimes, but a lot of my friends aren't too concerned about that kind of stuff. And I think maybe it has, do you think it has something to do with the fact that in our lives we haven't experienced, at least my generation, we haven't experienced a large earthquake? Are are you in Southern California? Um, I'm in the Bay Area. You're in the Bay Area, okay. Mm And, and so, were you here in um, 2014 when the Napa earthquake happened? Oh, I was. Yes, but I don't think I recall. It wasn't. It was only a medium big yeah. earthquake. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a really, really big earthquake. So the answer is, the little ones are always there to remind us. I think. And I've actually experienced quite a few big ones. And for me, they've always been, I've been lucky. They've always been more exciting than they have been uh, making me afraid of what's going on because uh-huh. I I never experienced, personally experienced damage or, or injuries from them. I know that when my kids, so we were here, my kids were growing up here when the um, Loma Prieta earthquake happened in 1989. Uh-huh. And they didn't want to sleep inside for a couple of days because I said, you know, the building could fall down. But in general, oh, mm-hmm. in general, things are pretty safe in California relative to places like Turkey, for example. Mm, I see. We, should, we should still be prepared and know what to do. Got it. Okay. And what do you think is the best way for us to remain prepared for earthquakes? To use the great checkout day as a reminder, you need to have some food and supplies ready. You should think about what you're going to do if you don't have power for three or four days. And all the things that are on the various lists of what to do. We actually have some money buried in our yard because if the electricity is out, we won't be able to go to the bank and pull oh. money. People won't be able to... Um, Use credit cards to uh, transfer money. That the internet will likely go down. Mm-hmm. So on. So, so there are certainly the, the things that they suggest you do are really thoughtful and useful, and not really a big effort compared to the benefit you get from them. I see. Okay. Um. Then how do you approach, I guess we touched upon this a little bit, but how do you approach public outreach and 
keeping the public educated and informed in seismology and what do you think is the most important thing that the public should understand when it comes to earthquakes? has always been a big part of what I've done. I was actually involved in it um, when I got out of high school. I was the explainer at the Exploratorium when it just opened. Wow. So got to talk to a lot of people just in general about science. I think that that the one of the important things is to people interested but not make them afraid to explain to them what's going oh. on and hope that they can understand and I think that the messages from shakeout for example what to do I think one of the great things about the shakeout day is that the kids in school always do shake out and they learn what to do and kids are a great multiplier because they go home and they say mom dad have we prepared for an earthquake? Where is our go bag? What are we going to do when the ground starts shaking? Oh, mm -hmm. And and I was, I gave a talk, a public talk, shortly after a moderate four and a half earthquake that had occurred right here. One of the ladies asked, "But but there was an earthquake," and and shook, and I thought, "What am I going to do? What am I going to do?" And then I remembered, ah. Oh, drop cover and hold on, but then it had stopped shaking. And uh, one of the points that I made to her is that if the earthquake is big enough for you to drop, need to drop cover and hold on, you'll have plenty of time to decide to do it because the bigger the earthquake is, the longer the shaking goes on. Got it, okay. So you would say like when an earthquake does happen, it's important to know what to do. And that would be if it's a large earthquake to drop and then get cover. Drop, cover, hold on. So, mm -hmm. so get under something big. Mm -hmm. If you're in bed, it's okay to stay in bed because beds are generally relatively safe places. But, but you don't want. So, one of the, one of the things that has caused a lot of injuries, for example, in recent earthquakes, is things falling on people. Mm -hmm. If you didn't. If you didn't bolt your shelves to the wall, for example, or in, a, in office buildings, often they have these false roofs and then when they shake, the little pieces fall down. And so the goal is to protect yourself from falling things. And, and so if the shaking goes on for a little while, you know, more than a few seconds, then the best thing to do is drop cover and hold on. And we learn the same way we learn how to bicycle ride or to drive a car or something is you practice, you practice, you practice. And so practicing the drop cover and hold on when the shaking starts is a good thing. Got it. Definitely. Okay. And then back to your research. Um, do you see any common trends or patterns in earthquakes in the past few years and decades specific to California? So... California's earthquake happened country and the one of the interesting things has been that um, that there are earthquakes that happen in places we didn't know that we should expect them to happen. Mm -hmm. So in 1983 the um, Koalinga earthquake was on a fault that we 
didn't really know about, we didn't think very much about the Ridgecrest earthquake. I mean, we know there are faults there, but the earthquakes there don't happen very often. And our, our experience of earthquake history in California is very short compared to the time it takes earthquakes to repeat on certain faults. And so, but one of the things that we've seen in the past 50 years is that there are a lot of earthquakes that happen on places where we didn't expect them to happen because in our historical view, we haven't seen earthquakes happen there. The Northridge earthquake was one of those, the Koalinga earthquake in that Northridge was um, 19, 94, mm-hmm. Columbia was uh, 1983. In essence, the Ridgecrest earthquake was also on a fault that we didn't really expect to see something. We don't know when to expect it. So there are two parts to the earthquake uncertainty. One part is, do you know where all the faults are that can produce big earthquakes? That's half of the problem. And the other problem is, do we know how long it happens between big earthquakes on those faults? And we don't know the answers really to either of those questions. And when we have historical assessments of the earthquake history on a fault, the uncertainties are actually pretty big. Mm-hmm. So, so, so there's been a lot of science done on the Hayward Fault, and we know that there were 12 earthquakes in the past 2,000 years. So you can divide 2,000 by um, 12 and get about 150 years or so. Uh-huh. But the, the, the ways of measuring are not very precise. And the, the, so, so we have a lot of uncertainty in the years. And just because it's been 150 years since that earthquake happened and nothing has happened doesn't mean necessarily that tomorrow it's more likely to happen but it doesn't mean that it's not going to ever happen got it of course and do you think there would be any indications of an earthquake that will happen in the coming years in the bay area or is that just impossible to say at all so so that's a, a very good question there have been many cases where after an earthquake happened, scientists went out and looked and said, well, see all of these things that changed before this earthquake. Mm-hmm. And then we look at another earthquake and those things didn't change. Maybe something else changed. Maybe nothing changed. And so the, the search for signs of an earthquake going to happen soon have not been very successful yet. And earthquake prediction as of yet, is not possible. I see. Okay. And in the future of seismology, do you foresee any changes, um, perhaps that would help in reducing the uncertainty, or how do you see the field of seismology changing in the future? So, so our data are getting better. We have a lot more of it. If, as we get more data, we learn that earthquakes. Even small earthquakes are more complex than we thought that they were. And so I think we have a lot to learn still about earthquakes. The problem with doing any kind of prediction or more precise forecasting is that we still don't have enough data to do a good job. We're not quite sure what we need to measure. The weather predictions didn't get very good until we had 
three things. We had a lot of good measurements in a lot of locations. And we had really good computer programs that could model some of the things we thought were important for the weather. And for the earth and the faults, we can't see the things that are happening in the ground. And we don't know whether we're measuring them yet. And so making a reasonable model for earthquakes and being able to say, well, you know, sometime between noon and four in the afternoon, the next uh, cloud layer is going to come through. We can't do something like that yet. It will be a long time before we can do it. I see. Got it. Yeah, that does sound very interesting, though. Um, how it is. How it's improving. Um, okay, and then recently in the Bay Area, I guess we have at our school to have felt a few small earthquakes, um, but they were noticeable. And what can you tell us about these small earthquakes that that happen? Do you remember when they were? I think it was last week. Um, there was one in the like at night, and there was one during school hours, but it was like at 11, but I don't remember yeah. the exact day that they happened. So, so there are a lot of faults in the Bay Area. There are earthquakes on these faults, mostly modern. You're in, you're in the South Bay? Uh, I live in Cupertino. Cupertino. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... so yeah, West Bay, South Bay. West Bay, it's okay. Yeah, but so... So... One of the things about earthquake statistics is essentially that for every 10 earthquakes of magnitude 2, we have on average one of magnitude 3. And for every 10 earthquakes of, that are smaller than magnitude 3, we have one magnitude 4. And so what that means is that in Northern California, every month there are maybe two magnitude 3s and one magnitude 4. There are regions that have more earthquakes. The Geysers is a region that has a lot of earthquakes. The area around Cape Mendocino and Eureka, California has quite a lot of earthquakes. Mm -hmm. um, but overall in the Bay Area, there are certainly earthquakes every day that nobody, they're too small to feel. And then every two or three weeks, there's an earthquake that is felt by somebody somewhere. And if there was a little earthquake, so, so we talk about foreshocks and aftershocks. Sometimes there's a, a bigger earthquake where big can be small and that earthquake might have more earthquakes that come after it. So if you, you had a, an earthquake in your area that you felt, then there are likely to be more smaller earthquakes that follow it and possibly a bigger one that comes right after it. Got and it. So it's part of it's part of living in the Bay Area. Mm. So if you feel an earthquake, it's more likely that there will be another one than if you didn't feel any earthquake at all. So the answer is yes. So if my my example is if you crumple up a piece of paper mm -hmm. and you put it, you put it down on the table, then like at the very beginning it it goes rattle rattle because it's kind of unfolding itself from being crumpled oh. and if you just let it sit there for a while it's going to keep every so often which you may or may not hear depending on how big it is 
there might be another uncrumpling of the paper. And the same thing happens in earthquakes. Something changed in when, when the earthquake happens. So there's stress building up. That's the crumpling of the paper. You crumpling the paper. And then when the earthquake happens, that's a big uncrumpling. Our yeah. modern uncrumpling. And then when you do that, it changes something so that there's going to be a little bit more of that. There are some earthquakes that have a lot of aftershocks, earthquakes that happen after them. There are other earthquakes that have very few. There, The earthquake that is smaller than magnitude 3 is not likely to be felt by very many people, so there can be many of those and nobody notices. But the bigger you, the earthquake, your main earthquake, that that happens the bigger than the aftershocks can be. They're not probably not going to be bigger than that earthquake, but but there can be more earthquakes that aftershocks can be up to the size of the main earthquake. And so um you're if it's a, a five or a six, you're more likely to feel some of the ones that came after it. Got it, I see. So you, you have to say if I'm not making sense. I'll try again. I think it. I think it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, the analogy of like paper and Good. how it uncrumples and sometimes you let it sit there and it still moves by itself. That's kind of very interesting that you use that analogy. Um, I guess moving back to um, what you do at Berkeley at the Berkeley Seismo- Seismological Laboratory. Um, yes. What kind of research? do you do there? So I actually retired a, a two years ago. Yeah. So I'm mm-hmm. really doing very much anymore. But I am still studying. So in, in the I said in the Cape Mendocino area um, near Eureka, there are a lot of earthquakes. So in 2020, December 2021, there was an earthquake. And in December 2022, there was an earthquake. And I'm interested in these earthquakes. What kind of source were they? How how many aftershocks there are? Where the aftershocks usually happen on the faults where the earthquake was, but in this case, it looks like they're happening in other locations. Surprisingly, other locations too. And so I'm working on learning more about that sequence of earthquakes up there. Wow. Okay, that's very interesting. But what I mainly did while I was working at Berkeley was manage the networks that reports all of the earthquakes. The, the network at Berkeley that helps report all of the earthquakes in Northern California. And then run the data center where all of the data is recorded from all of our stations for all of the time that they're on. And that data is not only valid, valuable for Northern California, it's valuable for earthquakes all over the world. Got it. Okay. And um, what role do you see earthquake warning systems playing in mitigating impacts of seismic events and what is your opinion on those so we i was part of the um part of the development of the earthquake early warning system that's working right now mm-hmm. it's an early warning system in the sense that it does not tell people before the earthquake is happening the earthquake has to start and we detect it quickly and then tell people that shaking is coming oh. so so there are personal responses that people can take to earthquakes like that. Like if you get a message that shaking is coming, you should drop cover and hold on. What you do in, in 
the case of the great shakeout and in the case you feel an earthquake but didn't get an early warning. It's also possible that some automatic things could happen. The typical example that people give is that you could open the garage doors for fire stations because in many cases the fire stations have been damaged in earthquakes and then the doors couldn't be opened and then the fire engines couldn't get out to go help people and stop the fires. But there are other things that can happen for um, automatic processing systems. One, if you have a factory that's producing something and the shaking would damage whatever you're doing, you can stop the production automatically, hopefully before the shaking starts and, and there's a lot of damage done. And that part, the technical part the, of uses, I think is not very well developed. I haven't heard very much about it. I know that the BART trains are um, receive the messages, and if an earthquake is reported to them, they automatically stop the trains. And then when the they're not going so fast, the trains are not going so fast, they're not light, as likely to be derailed, the people inside are not likely to be um, hurt as much, which is a great thing. Okay, so, got it. So the earthquake early warning system is valuable, but the earthquake early warning system is not, uh, does not supersede, it does not supplant the need to be prepared, to make sure that your house is ready, that you have a plan of what to do in case the earthquake happens. Because if you haven't done that beforehand, in the three seconds or five seconds or even 20 seconds before the shaking comes to you, there's not enough time to do it. Got it. Makes sense, yeah. Um, okay, and then the last question, I guess back to the Great Shakeout Day, um, do you think it's very important that as many people as possible participate, and why? I think it's it's important that people participate because it's a reminder that we live in an area with earthquake hazards and that they can do damage to us. I consider participation not only to be dropping under the table and hiding under the table when they say, now is the earthquake shakeout, now is the time, do it. Mm -hmm. But I think it's also very important that part of the great shakeout is to check what are your earthquake plans and supplies, maybe get new ones if you need to and so on so that, that you're really ready. All of those things that you can't do in the three seconds between the early warning and the shaking arriving. Okay, got it. Sounds great. Is there anything else you would like to add? No, I think your questions were pretty good. Okay, thank you so much.